The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Matthew once again, Matthew chapter 5. It was my intention, it's always my intention to do differently than what I'm able to do. But my intention to begin with, when I uh, drove down the road headed this way this morning, we were going to discuss uh, three different, completely different sermon, if you will, uh, lesson ideas from the text today, coming all out of Matthew chapter 5, however. Uh, I first want to look at the attitude we must obtain. And that is really found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through about verse number 12. And that was just one thought. Secondarily, we were supposed to, I thought at least in this hour, uh, we would talk about the prize we must pursue. And believe it or not, the prize I'm talking about is the prize that we receive when we suffer persecution. That's basically verses 10 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. And then I had hoped by this evening time, 5 o'clock hour, to talk about uh, something to do with the idea of um, uh, the uh, salt that we must maintain within us. And, of course, that's salt and light. That's the text from Matthew 5, verse 13. We're not anywhere near that. So we're still in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to have your Bibles open, and we're going to read again, beginning in verse 1. I want to remind you of a few things, those of you who were not able to be here in the last hour, but we'll move on into something different. First, that has to do with the fact of what is contained here in this portion Verses 1 through 12 of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, these are all attitudes that we ought to try to attain. We ought to try to be grabbing at, grasping at, pulling at these attitudes and getting our minds right in order that you can understand really the whole of the New Testament, for that matter, how to live as a Christian in general. But specifically, in these three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, Jesus is here, according to verse 1, He's here. He's come up onto a mountain or a hillside, and He looks out, and He sees multitudes of people. And He determines to, quote, open His mouth, verse 2, and to teach them. That's what His intention was, was to teach them. And it even mentions the fact that Jesus, when He did this teaching, verse 1, that He had sat down. And what makes that interesting, if you want to just do some review, and I'm talking not necessarily biblical review, although the things are mentioned in the Bible, if you want to do a historical review, you would find out that in most cases in Jesus' day, teachers would be seated during a certain portion of what we would call their delivery or their lesson. And when they were reading Scripture, they stood as well as their audiences stood. But typically, when you're talking about the teachers, other word for that is rabbi. Jesus was called rabbi by some of, the, some of those who encountered him at least, or teacher. And as they would teach, typically what would happen is the scriptures would be read, but when the explanation was given, uh, the teacher would sit down. Now, the audience would oftentimes remain standing. And the best I can research, this is seemingly true, they stood because they didn't want to go to sleep. So uh, if you go to sleep this morning, maybe you should try standing up. I know I had at least one high school teacher uh, that some people near the back row uh, have, have been around a lot who would have you to stand up if you looked like you were getting sleepy. So maybe that's the idea. I don't expect that will happen necessarily. But 
Jesus, when he sat down, he taught. And the latter part of this uh, sermon, toward the very end of it at least, in chapter 7, they describe Jesus as having taught uh, more and more better is the term I put with it. But he taught much better than the scribes and Pharisees. And so his teaching was, was genuine. His teaching was real and it was important. So we start in the last hour to look at what we often refer to as those beatitudes. I reverse that to say that those attitudes that ought to be because they ought to be present in us. And I may have helped some of you with an outline that you can think about at least to outline that. And that is if you look at it, we're about to reread it. Verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is an, an attitude of righteousness that comes and is only available when we see the right attitude toward ourselves. So he starts out by saying, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. That is, we're not high-minded, we're not high-handed, we're not lifting ourselves up. As a matter of fact, we're looking at ourselves and knowing that in comparison to the eternal mighty God that we serve, we are nothing but finite and minute beings in His sight. Now, because of the fact that He sent His Son to die for us, we're to be lifted up with Him eventually into heaven's home and be able to go home because of that. But in this life, we ought to maintain the attitude of being poor in spirit. And he says the result of that, and I divided it last hour by saying each of these can be principles coupled with promises. And the principle is to be poor in spirit, but the promise is to ultimately, and I'm quoting here what it says, for theirs, that is their possession, will be the kingdom of heaven. So the reward, the promise that comes out of that is heaven. And that has to do with our attitude towards self. And then as we were closing the last hour, believe it or not, that one verse took pretty much the hour. As we were closing the last hour, we're starting to get into verses 4 and 5. And there we're talking about not just our attitude towards self, but particularly our attitude towards our sin. And he says there in verse 4, and I'm reading right off the page here, blessed, that is, remember, that carries an idea of happiness as a result, but it is caused by being blessed, being sufficient. That is sufficiently supplied. So one who is sufficiently supplied, therefore can be happy, are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I mentioned in the last hour about how in this case that in Jesus' day, they were actually hiring mourners at times to come to do funerals and come to participate in funerals. And oftentimes it would be the contract of theirs, if you can call it that, that they would spend upwards of a week mourning in front of the houses and mourning in front of these people in the communities, whether they were related to them or not. They were being paid to do that. And the scribes and the Pharisees, particularly that he mentions in chapter 5 and verse 20 that we mentioned in the last hour, when Jesus said, accept your righteousness, exceed or go beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you should know why see heaven. We're not going to have heaven as a reward except we can be more righteous than them. Now, their righteousness was based on principle. Their righteousness was based on the legalities and following the law. And so we do the same. However, we've got to incorporate that as love. We do what God says because we love Him, and as a result, He understands that we love Him. Okay, And we continue to live after that manner. And so this part of this, this principle coupled with this promise here he said blessed are they that mourn that is it truly mourn mourn over their sins for they shall be comforted 
Now, the thing I have to ask myself in this, and I, I continue to ask myself this uh, all the time and hope I always will, is does my sin actually make me sorry? You ever done something or said something, particularly said something, bring this out for me because I have a big mouth that opens too often and too wide. You ever done or said something to someone and maybe in the moment as you're speaking that you back off and they may even say, you ought to apologize for that or that was mean or they may reply some way and you stomp off like I do typically. You stomp away and say, no, leave me alone. I'm not apologizing because I meant it. Or what I said was truth. I, I, maybe you've never acted, I acted that way yesterday, all right, yesterday. My backyard was the place, my wife and kids were the people. That's it, that's all it was to it. Something was going on I didn't appreciate, I didn't like, I didn't agree with, and I got ag angry, I got mad, and I told them this and that. You know, I didn't cuss nobody out or anything, but, you know, I, I let them know that I wasn't on the side of whatever it was they wanted for the day. My dream was to, to lay out under a shade tree, and everybody else's dream apparently was to work. I hit a point, and it took me way too many hours to where I actually started to mourn over my shortcomings, my sin. That has to be our life. There has to be a point where when we fall short of what God's will and God's glory ought to be given to Him, that we get to a place where that causes us to mourn. Now, we mourn again over the loss of loved ones. We mourn over situations. We mourn over what we're dealing with. We mourn over what we're experiencing. We mourn over the things that don't seem to go right and feel right. But to the end of the day, all he's asking of us and requiring of us is that we mourn over what is, in essence, contextually our sin. And we do that to the point of understanding there his comfort and what he offers. So I rarely do this. I, I tell people all the time, I don't flip and I don't flop when I'm preaching, but we're going to flip and we're going to flop just a couple of times today. I want you to go with me to begin with over the book of Corinthians. And I mean by that 2 Corinthians. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians. So I'll be turning over to your right. Go all the way to 2 Corinthians. When you get there, go to chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this right here, what we learned. We learned something about comfort. We're going to see something about peace. We're going to see something about mercy. And, and really something about this attitude that he's speaking of. Here it says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll just begin in verse 1. He said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, or Timothy our brother, that the church of God which is in Corinth, and with all the saints that are in Archaea. Watch this now. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of, what's that next phrase? The God of all comfort. How is that possible? He says, verse 4, Who comforted us in all our tribulations, that we, may be, may, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith ourselves are comforted of God for the sufferings of Christ and also in us our consolation, by the way, same word for comfort, and abounded in Christ, whether we be afflicted, it is in your consolation, same word for comfort, and salvation, which is effectually the enduring of the same sufferings, for we suffer and we are all for comforted for our consolation in salvation. Verse 7, for our hope, 
of you is steadfast in knowing that as you are partakers of the suffering, so ye shall also be the consolation. Same word for comfort. Reckon what Paul's talking about. God inspires him to write this, and we hear at least King James speak right here on the page the word comfort, 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 consolation, comfort, consolation, comfort, comfort. You're talking about being comforted. He's talking about what occurs when we do the will of God and it's through the power of God that we receive comfort. And right in the beginning of that, verse 4, the latter says, we have for us the God of, what's the next word there? All comfort. All comfort. And so back in our text here, when Jesus speaks to these people and then turn to us and says, blessed is they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we get low and we get in a place of weeping and mourning and suffering over our sins, we can be comforted. How is that? Ultimately, that comes, for, comes out of the, the idea that Christ can remove those sins. His blood washes those sins and we can find comfort in that. But that's only a part of what he's talking about here. He talks about ourselves, verse 3. He talks about our sins, verse 4. And in verse 5, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the principle and the promise here is to be meek, and the result of it is to inherit the earth. So the promise and the blessing is really that. Now, what does that exactly mean? Well, let's tie these two together to really, in my mind at least, understand it. When you think about what meekness is, you may have heard one say, biblically speaking, one thing to remember at least is meekness is not weakness. You know, we live in a society where basically if, if you decide, if you're in a situation, you know, where the rubber meets the road, where you're in the middle of a difficult place, maybe you're being... The next part of this section, at least, is going to get into persecution. When you're being reviled against, spoken against, lied about, that's, again, verse 10 through 12. When you're in that spot, if your choice in that position is just to kind of just duck your head and turn around and walk off, you must be weak. You're just a pushover. In other words, we can put with that. Not always true. Do you remember the things that occurred when Jesus, when he was going through those seven kangaroo courts and those mock trials during that night? And do you remember at least the one occasion when he's questioned, he's being ridiculed, he's being called on to ask uh, questions by these men? As a matter of fact, during the course of this, they were also slapping him and spitting on him and pulling out his beard and such. And at one point, Jesus, what? He didn't say a word. He had the ability. He had the power. He had the strength. He had everything within him that could have absolutely destroyed everybody in front of him. Whether it struck them dead, he caused the city to quake and fall. I don't know what means he could have and would have used, but he had the power of God in a body that he could have completely leveled those people in that place. And he could have at least spoke up like he did so many times when he was tortured basically by the Pharisees and the scribes in that day. He could have at least spoke up, but the record says, and he said not a word. He followed prophecy that said he would open not his mouth. There are times when meekness is to be applied and understood as not weakness. 
Meekness, as a matter of fact, you may have heard it described biblically as strength under control. We were talking just a little bit before the Bible class. Uh, someone asked me a little bit ago, had I ever ridden a horse? I have ridden a horse. I'm not a horse rider. I'm not good at it. I've just done it. But I used to go, one of my elders, when I lived in Mississippi, he had horses. And as a matter of fact, he trained horses. And more than that, he broke horses. And I have seen him get his rear end slung. I've, I mean, I've seen him get beat up, hurt. What was he trying to do? They used to say it. He was trying to meet that horse. He wasn't trying to break him in the sense of he wasn't willing to break his legs and make him useless. He wasn't willing to take away his strength, but he wanted that strength to be under control. And in that case, it was his control. He took away the control that that horse had to do what he wanted or what he willed, at least for times and for moments, because he controlled such. Meekness is strength under control. But let me give you a little bit different definition here. I've jotted this down in my margin right here, so I want to share it with you just for a second. Meekness is not thinking less of yourself, but in a sense, it is thinking of myself less. Meekness is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking less of myself. I just said that backwards that time. Anyway, you heard me the first time, maybe. I won't ever get it right again. You got to think less about yourself and think about others. Matter of fact, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 is a divine commentary on that where we esteem others better than ourselves. It's what I have to do. And meekness sometimes does that. You know, I get in positions a lot as, you know, just as someone who has been called a gospel preacher, not, not called to be, but, you know, called, titled a gospel preacher. I get a lot of people who will ask questions and such, and my, my reference is always, well, if you'll look right here in your own, you'll find that. I just I try to guide, I try to assist. I'm not even that great at such. But I get asked questions a lot of time by people who will basically say, you know, about something like this. They'll say, well, you know what? To be meek, it means that you can't stand up. You can't speak. You can't define any real time. No, 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 that's not it either. Meekness is carrying with it the idea, not of weakness, but of strength that's under control. It's taking the Word of God and answering questions at times in my mind where I have to remember it is easy to win an argument and at the same time lose the audience. You know, we could and we, we, we have in the past. I'm guilty at least. You know, you can take the Word of God and you can take it and instead of it being called a Bible, it can be a battering ram and you can beat someone over the head with it and people need to be taught. People need to understand truth. But we do that with meekness. We do what God would have done. And so that carries with the idea as well in considering our sin. What makes us meek? What makes me meek and what makes you and meek, I would assume, is the fact that we know our sin situation. We know where we stand if we stand alone, and we know how much we need God to get out of that. So that is just something about what is here. In the next place, not only our attitude towards self and our attitude towards sin, but then we have this development that comes on out. He says, blessed are they 
which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What is that? It's the idea of our attitude as well about our means. What is it that we're asked to do? Well, first of all, we're asked to understand our mourning. Where should I be? I think of myself as being that which is to mourn over my sin. I think of myself as being that which is meek in knowing that although I have available to me, through the Word and through it only, I have the ability to, to have all of God's power in front of me. And to understand like Christ did to keep that thing under control. But I also have the ability right here to understand the means of it. He says, blessed are you, are they, that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. How many times a day do you get hungry? Well, that would vary. I have three scheduled times for hungry in my life. Breakfast, lunch, and supper. And if you eat dinner, that's on you. I eat breakfast, lunch, and supper. I grew up eating breakfast, dinner, and supper, if you understand that. It's become lunch because i got too many kids. But we ourselves ought to be continually, internally hungry for the Word of God. That's what he's going to get into. He doesn't do it here. He doesn't even do it in this context of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But if you think about what Jesus said, even in the account, and you can find this in Luke chapter 4 as well as in Matthew chapter 4, what was Jesus' Jesus's answer when Satan came to him and tempted him to fill his belly? How do you answer that? He talked about a man, a person who would be blessed, who would be hungry, yes, but who would be filled by the bread of life. Who would use the word of God as that bread. And here he says to us very plainly, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. What do you mean, Jesus? The requirement here is that we be famished. But the result of this is that we be filled. Let me take you to another passage. We flipped to one just a minute ago. Let's flip to one more and we'll stop the flipping stuff. Go over with me, if you would, to the book um, of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We went to 2 Corinthians 1 just a moment ago. So go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm almost there, so I'm assuming you're close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look down, just drop down... We can't put it in all of its context, but drop down to verse 21. For he hath made him, he's talking about Jesus here. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might, what's the next word? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How is it possible to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. It's possible because it's possible to hunger and thirst after 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that. And we know that in, in not in this teaching, but you read this in the book of John, you go through a lot of those statements, particularly chapter, uh, chapters uh, 6 through 12 of John. You can find these coming up over and over again where Jesus stands up and he says, I am, and he'll list a list of things. Two of the things he says is, I am the bread of life. 
and I am living water. In the living part of it, the living water part of it in John chapter 4, he explained extensively to the woman at the well and claimed to her that that water that she was trying to pull out of the well that she wanted to take for herself as well as share with him, that that water was very temporal and that he wanted to give her eternal water. And he said to her that she would never thirst. Right here he says to us and them, blessed, that is sufficiently supplied are you that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's the result of that? They shall be filled. And so that is our mindset toward sin concerning the morning of it, concerning the meekness of it, and here concerning the means of it. That is the only way to get to this place in light of our sin is to know and take on the Word of God. Now the next section here. Verses 3 concerning ourself, verses 4 through 6 concerning our sin. Now here we have another section here concerning our Savior, verses 7 through 9. And these are the attitudes that we must have. Verse 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What, and there are plenty more. If there are three, there are 3,000. But what are the three that are listed here? Divine principles that are given to us that result in our principles becoming promises that directly apply to Jesus. They're right there on the page. Describing Jesus, and there are many, many, million, millions of words that could subscribe, uh, prescribe, describe him. But the ones here are these. Jesus was merciful. Jesus was pure. And Jesus was a peacemaker. Now he did all that he did to make up some of that and the majority of those three principles. The first one that we read across here, blessed are they, verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. I call this the exchange. Because he says you will receive mercy only when you give mercy. What is mercy? I've heard it be said different various ways. But basically mercy is when we receive the judgment that God should give us but he chooses not to. Other ways to define that. Justice would be God looking at me and saying, okay, there's Jim Burrell down there on earth. He's nothing but an awful, hateful, uh, despised, sinful, you know, whatever other descriptive terms could be. Lying, cheating, whatever. That's what he is. And so my judgment says he receives a promise, but a promise of hell. And there's an extent where I live my entire life in light of that possibility and I live my entire life in the best way that I can according to Scripture to try to do right and be right and live right. But what happens is I'll eventually, like you will, stand in judgment to be judged and there are going to be some of those things and some of those areas in which God had just, oh, he, he just, I'm thankful that He promised. Almost said hopefully He would. No, He will. Thankful that he promised mercy. 
but it won't occur in the area where I've not been willing to give mercy toward others. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, one of the things, and it's not mercy, but it's a similar exchange principle there, one of the things that he taught them was to forgive our debtors as God's forgiven our debt. God has always asked us just simply to treat one another as he treats us. And Jesus was the epitome of this. Jesus is that of mercy. Secondarily there, Jesus is not only calling for an exchange of sorts, but he gives us what I've defined here for memory's sake is the expression of it. Verse 9, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What does it mean to have peace? Well, you say, well, peace is when two people who disagree decide to agree. Mm. True peace is not a treaty. True peace is not two people who stand on one side or the other and say, well, I believe this and you believe that and we've argued about it so long till we're not going to argue anymore, but I'll still stand on the fact that I'm right while you stand on the fact that you're right. No, peace is when the man over here stands back and it has to end up being reciprocal. But it's when the man over here stands back and say, look, whether or not I'm right or not, Right now, we're going with the fact that you are. How does that really position, though? There comes a place in my life where I have to look at God and say, God's right. You know, I've got my experience. I've got my conclusions. I've got what I want, what I will, what I desire. But at the end of the day and all of that, God is right. And God in that... I have to get to a place where I'm willing to make peace with God, but not because I determine that I'll just not argue with God anymore. It's when I determine that God is right. And a matter of fact, it is Jesus that is described as the peace that passes all understanding. That's what he is. And so we have an example of that. And of course, Christ is our peace as well. And then the very last one here as we close. The next verse, verse 10. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So if you are peace, and you're a peacemaker, and you have peace because of the Prince of Peace, you can be called His children. But if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and that's the key we'll mention in 5 o'clock hour probably, but if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, guess what? The result is the kingdom of heaven. Very similar to what he started with across the page. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Reward. And this is the idea of not just the exchange of it and the example of it, but the expression of it. How is it? that we can express to God how grateful we are. Sometimes it is simply because we endure this life. We have a hope. And so our attitude towards self, our attitudes towards sin, our attitude towards the Savior will bring us to a point of having the right attitude toward our situation. Just right down the line. And none of those things can be out of, out of order. 
I can't expect to be okay with the situation that we're living in right now on this earth, United States of America, state of Alabama, community of Borden Springs or wherever, and endure the things that I endure, and some of that including the persecution that can come that we'll talk about later, I can't expect that to ever be the case unless I have the Savior in between me and that. And unless I have my sin between me and the Savior being broken down. And unless I have myself being pushed to the bottom to make sure that everyone else, including and especially God, can come to the top. And then He remains my focus and my fix. And then we pray He remains as our finality in life. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. Unfortunately, in the last hour, I described to you that this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, begins with Jesus preaching, teaching His disciples. And so really, the things that we've already discussed and the things that are going to be discussed throughout this whole sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is our place to find it. Everything that's discussed here does not, or at least does not at current state, apply to a non-Christian, to someone who's not a disciple. In order to be a disciple, one must be a follower. In order to be a disciple, one must be a learner. And save one be a follower and a learner of Christ, he can never be called a child of His. He can never in, 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 uh, inherit heaven, as He promised twice in this text. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God. It's through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, you can put on Christ, and you can have access to these blessings. And ultimately, the word blessed again, carrying with the idea of being completely insufficient as He's applied but not supplied by self and by this world, but supplied by God. If you're here this morning, you're like I am. And you really review even the things that are stated just, just so far. And you find yourself in saying, well, you know what? I, I really, I don't, I, I don't mourn enough. I don't, I don't have the right attitude. I don't have the right heart. I don't have the willingness to deal with the things that this life holds. So what would heaven be like? The thing is, we have to continue to come back. Through prayer and repentance, we're offering that invitation. Now it's open all the time, but we're going to sing a song of encouragement to encourage the same while we stand and sing.